Okay, so we are beginning our series again, or our second part of our 10, 13-part sermon series on Nehemiah, the building blocks of hope. And I hope this week that um, as a church, you, not every one of you is part of Mercy Church, but those who were part of Mercy Church were able to begin uh, with chapter one and enjoy digging deeply into the truth um, that we shared last week, Sunday, on Nehemiah chapter one. And I know a number of you we're engaged this week in deep Bible study on that book, and so I just want to encourage you to continue. Well, many of you, of course, were not here last week, or some of you were not. So let me just give you a very, very brief um, preview into the uh, book of Nehemiah, and then we'll get going. And Nehemiah, of course, is an Old Testament book written by the man um, called Nehemiah. It's a memoir. He's sharing his story of of how the Lord used him to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and, and in fact, call the people uh, to repentance and holiness in Jerusalem. These are the exiles that came back out of Babylon uh, to Jerusalem and Judea. Nehemiah teaches us a lot. But if one thing it's supposed to teach us, it's supposed to teach us that we have an awesome God who's orchestrating history, bringing history to its consummation, bringing a way for Christ to come. And because of that's the truth, we called it the building blocks of hope. Nehemiah, the building blocks of hope. There were two, I had three points last week, but two lessons from last week. Lesson number one, that Nehemiah teaches us about what it means to follow the Lord. And the lesson number one, that we need to have an open heart to the work of God. That we need to be personally involved when the news came about what was happening in Jerusalem, the city walls were still in, in a state of disrepair. The, 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 not just the walls, the, the gates were burned down. You could just see Nehemiah's heart burning within him, and he wept before the Lord. He mourned and he fasted. He fasted for the people and mourned for the people who were languishing in Jerusalem. And he fasted in mourning because the glory of God was being diminished over the city of David. To be a follower of the Lord, you need to have an open heart. You need to be personally engaged in his service. The second thing that we learn from Nehemiah is simply this, that we need to be persistent in prayer. Before Nehemiah did anything in Jerusalem, and he was a phenomenal administrator. Books are written about his administrative abilities. Books are written about his leadership qualities. He was a brilliant leader, a brilliant administrator. He, be administrator. he becomes the governor of Judea. But undergirding everything that he did was prayer. First you pray, and then you work. First you ora, and then you labora, as they say in Latin. And I think that's what we learn right from the beginning of Nehemiah, that we have a man here who is persistent in prayer and who is open, who has a heart open to do the will of the Lord. Well, today we're going to look at someone who's a discerning leader, a discerning leader. And I think this, just to understand what we mean by the word discerning, in, in, the word in Greek is translated as someone who, is, who distinguishes, who, who's able to separate um, things, who's able to diligently search, to, to, to examine. And a follower of Christ has this ability to discern. And he's using that ability because he understands God's will through his word and seeks to do God's will alone. 
a woman or a man who follows Christ is supposed to be is called to the calling of spiritual discernment and that is basically to say your will be done Lord I will seek your will help me to fulfill your will and not mine and then just to reinforce that truth I mean we get it already in the Lord's prayer and so just to reinforce that truth I'm going to read from uh, Luke chapter 11 just a few verses from that book to help us understand Jesus' call on their life to be discerning. And then we will talk about Nehemiah chapter 2. But Luke 11, verse 1 through 4, this is what we read there. It says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then scrolling down a little bit, it says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. And to be spiritually discerning, we need his spirit. Let us ask the Lord for his spirit to, to fall on us now and to lead us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now that you will bless us by the presence of your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit will do an awesome work in our lives this morning, that we will not leave this space unchanged, that we'll listen intently, that we'll learn what you want to teach us, be encouraged where you need to encourage us, comforted where we need to be comforted. We want your blessing now on our lives. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know, Lord, that you will lead, lead us and teach us. And so we thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning with you is first share our theme and then... Um, share how we're going to divide this text before us, and then I'm going to read the text verse by verse and explain it to you. I typically don't do that, but I thought this is such a beautiful story, and just kind of walking through the story systematically will allow us to kind of really grab hold of what uh, the Lord has for us this morning. So I have titled this sermon, a Profile, The Profile of a Discerning Leader, and we're going to look at three things, and we're going to begin by a discerning leader is fully dependent upon God. A discerning leader, whatever your age and calling, is to be dependent upon God. Let's begin by reading uh, chapter 2 of Nehemiah, the first two verses. There we read. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? And then this is the conclusion. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. As we work through the text this morning, um, I encourage you, of course, always to bring a Bible to church, and you can just put some scratch notes beside what we're reading about. This will help you also in your Bible study to remember things, or you can type it on your phone. Um, but let's, let's pull these verses to, to apart and see where we are called to understand that someone who is spiritually discerning is fully dependent upon the Lord. As I was preparing this message this week, I was asking myself, how do I help you understand what's going on here? 
It seems so foreign to us. And how do I help you understand that to the very last cell in Nehemiah's body, he was dependent fully on the Lord, fully dependent. Without him, nothing good would transpire on that day. He was sad before the king of Persia. And maybe just to kind of grab hold of this idea of dependency, I thought, well, maybe I will share a short, a short story that is maybe a little bit more um, time appropriate, you could say. As I was preparing this message, I was remembering um, Joni Erickson-Sintata. That's her right there. Joni was 17 years old when she was in a um, diving accident. She dove into shallow waters and she broke her neck and she became a quadriplegic. And she's still that today, over 50 years later. Joni shares a story of her, and she says this is a story, this is a, something I, I experience regularly, but she said there was a day a few years ago when I was at a conference and a woman came up to her and she said, Joni, every single, every single time I see you, you're so put together. This is things women say, not men, by the way. You're so put together and you always have a smile on your face. And Joni responded and she said, it's not that easy. She said, this is how it goes in the morning. She says, at 6 o'clock in the morning, this was she was married to Ken Tata there. You can see Ken. She says, Ken used to leave at 6 o'clock in the morning. And from 6 to 7, I was in bed waiting for my caregiver to come. And I was in prayer. Because everything in me didn't want to do what I had to do today or any day. I knew that when my caregiver comes, she would have to take me up. She'd have to bathe me. She'd have to brush my teeth. She'd have to clothe me. Then she would have to prepare breakfast for me. And then she would have to feed me. And then she would have to help me get into the car, go wherever I'm going. I was fully dependent upon them. And just want to give and I would hear that door open, she says, as the caregiver was walking into the house, and I'd hear them walk down the hallway and open the door to my bedroom. And as soon as they walked into the door, I would put a smile on my face. But that smile did not come from within. It came from above. To meet the challenges of the day, I was fully dependent upon the Lord. And by his grace, he has been able to put a smile on my face in the face of severe suffering. And so the reason I have a smile on my face this morning, she says, is because of him only. We may not be in the same circumstances that Joni found herself in, unable to do anything beyond prayer. But it's also possible that's exactly where you find yourself this morning, whether you're online and would love to be here or here now. That getting up in the morning is extremely hard. Well, that's Nehemiah. He found himself in the circumstances that anything beyond prayer would be impossible. 
It was the Lord who would give Nehemiah the strength to meet the challenge of this day. And it seemed that the Lord gave him four months to prepare for this day. We meet Nehemiah on the pages of Scripture about four months before this in the month of Keslev. Kislev is probably November, they say, in the Jewish calendar. But now we're in the month of Nisan. This is not a car, this is a month. And the month of Nisan is the beginning of the calendar year, I think, and it's, and it's March, April. Anyway, commentaries say that there's about a four-month window in there before the Lord called him uh, to this unbelievable task of presenting his case to the king. He had four months to prepare, four months to pray, four months to count the costs. And even though he had been preparing, you could say, for four months, not knowing when this day would exactly transpire, the fact that we know the story may only hide the difficulty that Nehemiah faces. You know, when you actually know the end of the story, it kind of ruins the plot line of the story. That's kind of what we have here. The intensity of the story is lost in the fact that we already know the outcome. But Nehemiah didn't. And you have to understand that when Nehemiah is praying, your will be done, O God, he did not know the full outcome of the story. He did not know whether the king would actually look favorably upon him. How would he know that? There is no formula to know exactly how God will move. We can find his will, his, 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 his will of, that he defines for us in Scripture, but when it comes to the nitty-gritty of life, we don't know. This is what Nehemiah knew. He knew that when he was in the presence of the king, he was a dictator. And not altogether a benevolent dictator either. He has blood on his hands. At times, he was cruel. He also knew that when you're in front of a dictator of this kind of power and authority, at just the click of the, is that a click sound? I don't know. But just at the click of something, you could send him to his death. One of the things that the butler had to do, the cupbearer had to do when he was in the presence of the king, was have a smile on his face. I rec read the notes from Shakespeare um, who, who quotes or who writes about Julius Caesar. And G Julius Caesar says this about those people in his presence. He says, let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep the nights. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. He has a lean and hungry look. Such men are dangerous. We have no idea whether Nehemiah was rather plump or not. But we did know, we do know, that he has a smile on his face until today. Because today, he says, is the first day that he was sad in the presence of the king. And it could cost him his life. Now, some commentators are wondering why it took four months for him to be sad in the presence of the king. Wasn't he sad before? What, didn't the king notice this before? Well, I think it's arguable that, argued well that, that the king, Arcticerces, had more than one palace that he frequently went to. He actually had four for different festivals, for winter, summer season, etc. And they argue that this is the day that he came back to Susa after being away for a while 
And, and it was actually quite a festive day. And we know that it was quite a festive day because the queen was beside him. And this typically did not happen. The queen was sitting right there uh, while Nehemiah was being sad. And, and, and because of this, this only creates the disparity between how the king was feeling and how the queen was feeling and how Nehemiah was feeling in their presence. The tension is building. Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I think some people are right when they argue that Artaxerxes is a little bit playful here. Kind of like, you must be heartbroken. That's why you're so sad. How is your love life going? Like that. Nehemiah had two options. Right there, right then. One option would be, <laughs> I'm not really sad. Yeah, had a bad night. Just kind of shrug it away. But that wasn't an option for Nehemiah. He had the option also to tell the truth. And because his heart was fully dependent upon the Lord, seeking the Lord's will, not his own, he faced the, the question straight on, as we're called to do. Not to hide the truth, but to be honest to be transparent, to speak the truth. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. And he was extremely vulnerable in that moment. And so we read in verse 3, I was very much afraid. I don't think there's enough words to capture the fear that was right in front of him right there. The fear was imminent danger to his very life. You ever been there? But he was going to blow it all open. He's going to ask the impossible. Some 13 years before this, we learned that Artaxerxes, the same guy, put a stop to the building of the walls because there was opposition to that. In Ezra chapter 4, we can read about that. And he knew that Jerusalem was a, as a rebellious city. So why would he give favor to Jerusalem today? He would have to rescind his policy, and because of that, he was very much afraid. But you have to understand, loved ones, when God is on our side, fear runs away. When God is on our side, fear runs, the way, runs away. Darkness flees in the presence of light. And so the light of God shone into the palace at this moment. Fear then dissipated, and he boldly stated what needed to be stated. This is the confidence that you can have in the service of the greater king, and his name is Jesus today. Verse 3, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look so sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and, it, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? You understand now that he has passed the door of no return. He would have to explain himself and his needs now. There's no escaping, no running away now, Nehemiah. You're all in. And he was. He loved the city of David, but he didn't say the city of David. He didn't call it Jerusalem. He's wise. He knows that that might have been a trigger for Artaxerxes. And so he just left that alone. But he appeals to Artaxerxes' heart. He appeals to his emotion. 
Artaxerxes could relate to the fact that there were cities that were destroyed in his empire that maybe his ancestors were in as well. And that brings great dishonor to the city and a great bearing on the heart. It breaks someone's heart. So he appealed to that. And he leans into that. And then follows the mighty hand of God in directing the heart of the king. This is beautiful. The king says in verse 4, what is it you want? tide is changing in his favor very quickly. And now Nehemiah is like, okay, this is really important. This is really, really big. I can't make a mess of this. <laughs> so he prays, which is really, really wise. It's called an arrow prayer. People call it an arrow prayer. Some people call it a telephone prayer. You know, when you pick up the phone, you're about to call somebody, you just say that quick prayer before the person answers. He didn't ask for a place to go hide and pray. He didn't probably close his eyes. That would be awkward. He didn't move his lips. That would also be awkward. He prayed from the recesses of his heart, and God listens to your heart prayers, loved ones, still today. It could be as simple as, Lord, have mercy on me here. Lord, help me. Lord, today remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was an arrow of prayer on the cross. Very simple, very direct. The Lord teaches us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It does not need to be an elaborate prayer. It just needs to be a simple cry to your Father, and your Father will listen. It's been said, though, that if you're a man of prayer or a woman of prayer, you can shoot up arrow prayers. It's difficult to have arrow prayers when you don't pray regularly. So I hope you have both in your life. Fully depending upon the Lord allows you to have arrow prayers in your time of need. That's the first. Here's the second. Fully prepared to, to plan in faith. Fully prepared to plan. Or fully prepared for action is the other way I've written it here. This is verse 5. And I answer the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. That's a summary statement for everything that he wants to do here. It's pretty impressive. Let me go and rebuild the city. Thank you very much. But he's narrowing in on Jerusalem now without saying Jerusalem, asking for an huge request, basically saying, give me a leave of absence that might take a year or two, and it ends up taking 12 years. <laughs> you be a boss where your employee says, give me a year or 12. You're like, okay, you can go. He's carefully executing his plan here because he's carefully prepared that plan before he had to execute the plan. He came in prepared trusting God that this would turn out the way it should. And then verse 6, Then the king and the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and, and when will you get back? And it pleased, listen, it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He was on the good books of the king now. He's like, okay, I'm just going to start asking for things right now. He's favorably disposed to me. Maybe it's because the queen was sitting beside him. That sometimes helps. Sometimes it doesn't. I think it helped here. Verse 7, I also said to him, now here he just 
fills out the plan. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, king of the, uh, no, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. I hope he didn't say that too quickly because that's a lot of information. How did he know about Asaph? the keeper of the royal park. How did he know about the letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? Euphrates, because the Lord gave him four months to do diligent work in preparation. If I'm going to build a wall around Jerusalem, these are the things I need, these are the people I need to be in contact with. He, contact with. he was an amazing administrator. But he was also in prayer. Because he knew that if he was doing the Lord's will, that God would supply his needs. And he went in that confidence. Some of you have heard the words of Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China. He has this beautiful quote that goes like this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. There's a picture coming up right now. God's work done in God's way. How did I know? God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Ever. But then you ask, did he really need to be prepared? Doesn't the spirit move? Doesn't God, if God's fully in control, do we have to be so prepared for, for the eventualities that might hum, come when, when the doors are open for us? And the answer is yes. Luke 14, verse 28 says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. This person wants to go to Judea, but he has no idea what he's doing. That didn't happen. You plan, and you pray, and you keep planning, and you keep praying, and you keep planning. To be a man or a woman of discernment demands that you live with a prepared plan, that you know what's going to happen next, that you seek to, to, to play, prepare for the future. That's okay and good. But sometimes in all of that, the Lord closes the door. In all the preparations you've been praying and seeking God's will, and sometimes he just closes the door because it's not his will. I'm not going to lie to you. A few, last week we, or two weeks ago, we found out that the property that we were pursuing that was perfectly located in McQuestion for Mercy Church where we could build a multi-purpose center and, and, and do ministry there, I think with ease at some level, we had raised about $400,000. We had an architect that goes by the last, last name as mine. All lined up. He was already beginning to do drawings. We had consult, consultation with budget, environmental. We had so much preparation work done. And the Lord shut the door. It's not safe to move on to that property. The envir environmental impact is too risky. You will not even get a mortgage from a broker. Or from a bank. That's hard. When you prepare in prayer and the Lord shuts the door. But the Lord is good. And his will will be done. And we continue to go in faith. And we'll continue to ask you to pray. That the Lord provides a home for us. We'll continue to ask that the Lord makes us generous in our giving and in kind. But always we say in our preparations, 
your will be help me out done your will not ours and nehemiah got to experience what that means and when the lord's will aligned with his will you could say there was great joy and so we've close off with this he's fully aware of god's providence fully aware of god's providence or provisions it says, because the gracious, end of verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. You read that? I just want to read that again. Because, the causative here, why did this all happen? Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Full stop. The beauty of being powerless without prayer the beauty of being fully dependent upon the lord and unless the lord moves nothing will happen when you're in that place when the lord does move he gets all the glory and that's what happens here and Nehemiah learned afresh that day that because God is God and he's altogether sovereign over the powers at be, and this was the power of a Persian dictator, we read in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills because he is God. That's why. We worship the same God, loved ones. If God can change the heart of Arctic Xerxes, he can change the heart of anyone. You believe that you may be praying for someone for months and years praying that their heart would be softened by the gospel that they become followers of Christ I'm going to tell you to keep on praying we worship the God who reversed the decisions of an ancient dictator because he's good and he's gracious the gracious hand of God was upon me did you see that word the gracious hand of God fills the Psalms. The psalmist continue to relate that truth that it's the gracious hand of God upon us. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Verse 15, The eyes of all who look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. Verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to call on him, who call on him in truth. Verse 19, He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Loved ones, have you seen his goodness lately in your life? Do you know that his will is altogether holy, that it's altogether good, and he knows what's best for you, as he knows what's best for his church? Do you trust that this morning? I want you to meditate just in closing here that the Lord understands what's the best for us and what's good for us. And what's good for us and what's best for us and what's best for these little two babies here as well is that he sent his son, the real builder of hope. See, Jesus was a man of perfect discernment. You know that? He once prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours be done.
is the day before he died. Discerning the will of the Almighty, he says, take this cup from me. It's too heavy for me to bear. But he knows the heart of his Father, so he says, but not my will, but yours be done. The most unbelievable thing happened in the course of history. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. To have our best in mind at the cost of his son. To have our hope restored, our redemption secure, our atonement cared for, everything looked after at the cost of his son. It was the Lord's will to crush him, we read in Isaiah 53, and to cause him to suffer. And Jesus knew God's will. And Jesus, from that moment on, after he prayed that prayer, was resolute, and he went straight to the cross. He hung on that cross for you 2,000 years ago. Let his blood drip from him. Exhale his last breath. Exhale his last breath for you under the wrath of Almighty God for our salvation. That was God's will for us. So that so that we could have eternal salvation for all who trust in him. He became the source of our salvation. You see, loved ones, the ultimate act of spiritual discernment, the ultimate act of spiritual discernment is this, to put our faith in Jesus Christ and now to trust him with your life. And if you have not done that yet, today is the day of salvation. May his will be done in your life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Nehemiah. But really, God, it's a story about your provisions. It's a story about your power. It's a story about your gracious hands. It's a story about depending upon you when we can't meet the day's challenge to say, but my God is God and he's in control and he will help me. God, I pray that each one of us today will be more fully dependent upon you. That in the face of our trials, in the face of our sickness, in the face of our loss, in the face of grief, grief we will say, but I will trust in you. I will depend on you. Because your will ultimately is good and your will had it in it so that, that Jesus would die for us and give us eternal life. You are good and we are in need. Bless us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.